Thanks, Ben. Good morning, and welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here, and we want to uh, thank you for joining us, especially if you're a visitor or family. Uh, we're thankful that you are here this morning. Happy uh, post a picture of your mom on social media day. It's, uh, what it's, it's become, maybe a little bit, no? Um, also, call your mom. They also appreciate calls, not just the post. Uh, right now, we're in a sermon series in the Gospel of John. John was one of Jesus' disciples, and so uh, we have been seeing John's eyewitness, firsthand account, as he tells about this real Jesus and, and uh, his ministry, his teachings, his miracles, and everything uh, in between. And so uh, today's passage, uh, it's kind of providential. We're celebrating a holiday. In today's passage, uh, Jesus goes to one of the main Jewish holidays, and there's a, a big discussion, we'll call it a discussion, that, uh, ha- well, they, they, they try to kill Jesus, so I guess it's more than a discussion. But uh, today we're talking about Jesus at the Feast of Booths, and if you know what that is, that's okay, I didn't really know what that was before prepping for this sermon, so we will um, unpack that in just, just a minute. But uh, we're going to read the first 24 verses, so you can follow along on the screen behind me or also uh, in your Bibles if you'd like. John 7, verses 1 through 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to, uh, to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not come yet, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If, anyone will, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowds answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work. And you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is for Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. All right, so right off the bat, we see uh, the setting is this festival, uh, this holiday, Jewish holiday, called the Feast of Booths. They're also uh, called the, the Feast of Tabernacles, if you've heard either of those phrases. It was a yearly celebration when uh, the Jewish people, the Israelites, would go to Jerusalem, if they could, and they would spend a week in these tents, or these booths that they would make. Uh, here's kind of a modern-day example of what it would look like. Whether they built these uh, in the streets or right outside Jerusalem, or if you had a roof, you could build that on top of your roof. And the point was to remember God's salvation. So God saved his people out of slavery in Egypt. They crossed through the Red Sea, and then they wandered in the wilderness for a while. And during that time, they lived in tents. They lived in these booths. So this feast, this yearly celebration, was to remind God's people and, and for God's people to thank God for his provision and his salvation. It was linked up to the celebration um, and thanking God for the harvest as well. And many people, if possible, would come into Jerusalem. So that's kind of the setting, not just for today's passage, for the next few, and we'll talk more about this later. 
but this kind of sets up what is going on today. So our passage starts off by saying, Jesus uh, went about in Galilee, but wouldn't go to Jerusalem and Judea uh, for fear that the Jews were seeking to kill him. So uh, if you don't know what these locations are, Galilee, just think like northern Minnesota. It's, it's the backwoods, not too important, small towns. And then uh, Judea is the region, and Jerusalem would be the capital and think of that like the metro. And so Jesus is up uh, in the boondocks, in the north woods, doing miracles, teaching for the most part. And he is choosing not to go near the, the center of the Jewish religion, near the temple, near where lots of Roman soldiers are. So he's, he's staying away because of the crowds, because he does not want the crowds to, to force him. Um, think, think like Palm Sunday, does not want to force him into becoming a king before his time. We'll get to that in a second. And also, uh, he's staying away because of just the, the closeness to this central command for the Jewish r- rulers that would be in Jerusalem. So he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So this phrase here, the Jews, it could also be translated the Judeans, meaning the Jewish religious rulers in that location in Judea, or also could just be uh, better understood as the Jewish religious leaders, because it's not every single Jew that's trying to kill him, but rather these specific uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and and high priests, etc. So kind of akin to when we say the Romans crucified Jesus, we do not mean every single Roman is guilty for crucifying Jesus, nor do we mean that even all Roman soldiers were guilty of crucifying Jesus. So here we're not saying Jews are bad, but actually Jesus himself. And John, the author here, is also Jewish. So when we, say, when we hear the Jews are seeking to kill him, we should think religious rulers. All right, so Jesus' brothers know about this holiday. They're actually going to go up to this holiday uh, and ce- celebrate in Jerusalem. So these are Jesus' actual biological brothers, his, his half-brothers. Mary and Joseph had some other kids. And they're trying to get Jesus to come with them. So that's that's kind of what's going on here. They're saying, okay, Jesus, you're, you're saying you're the Messiah. You're doing wonders and miracles and teachings and healings. Well, if you, if you really are who you say you are, then come on. This is essentially 4th of July, and this is a huge parade. And if you really want to be king, if you really uh, are who you say you are, well, then come. What, what, what greater place to show everyone, not just the backwoods, ignorant folks of Galilee, but everyone who you are, uh, come with us. Come with us up to this festival. Hop on the parade. Announce your candidacy. Show that you really are um, who you say you are. But Jesus denies that. Jesus rejects that because his brothers have the wrong understanding of what type of Messiah Jesus will be. They, have, they don't understand what type of king that he is. Jesus knows that he will eventually do this, but now is not his time. Palm Sunday will come eventually, but it is not yet. And also because verse 5 says that even his brothers uh, didn't believe in him, some commentators think that they're not just saying, hey Jesus, we think you're this type of Messiah, so come and announce your candidacy and start being king right now. Other commentators think they're even trying to set him up, whether set him up to embarrass him because their, their brother is acting crazy and they don't believe in him or maybe even trying to set him up to get him in trouble. But Jesus responds to them and tells them, no, my time has not come yet, Jesus said to them, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But his brothers had gone... But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then also uh, he went up, not publicly, but in private. So Jesus responds to his brothers by saying, no, I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do, telling me to do. And then they leave, and then Jesus does it. So uh, I read this passage with a number of you uh, from our church this week, and uh, many questions were like, is Jesus lying here, right? Like he, he starts off in verse 8 by saying, no, not going to the feast. No, brothers. And then as soon as they leave, verse 10 says, and then Jesus went up to the feast. So, so what's going on here? Uh, even if you don't know uh, much about the Christian faith or about Jesus, you probably know that lying is bad and that 
you know, the, the central religious figure should not be deceiving people and telling lies. So what's going on here? Because it sure seems like Jesus says, not going, and then he goes. Um, commentators throughout history uh, have kind of come up with six ways to understand what's going on here. I think two of them are very helpful and, and probably what is going on. The first one is, is just what we've been talking about is uh, that Jesus is saying that he is not going to go up in the way that his brothers want him to go. They're saying, come with us to become Messiah. Come with us to the center, to our capital, and, and announce that you are the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So it has less to do with him moving from one location to another and more about their, them saying, come announce that you're Messiah and, and Christ. And he's saying, no. So I think that's Definitely what is going on. Also, just like even grammatically, what's going on is it's kind of hard to, to see in English, but um, as his brothers are leaving, Jesus is saying uh, in the, the present, if that's, I'm not pretty bad at grammar here, but if that's the right, ver right verb at the present, I am not going. Right now, currently, I am not going. You are leaving. You're going to Jerusalem, brothers. I am not going. I am not going yet. I am currently not going. So Jesus not saying I will never go, or that I'm not going to go later, but I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to go in the way you want me to go. I'm not going to go this instant. And as we see, Jesus goes privately because he does not want the crowds to welcome him in that particular way, thinking that, hey, in this great holiday that we are celebrating, here comes this Messiah that we've been hearing about, and he knows uh, what is going on. So Jesus very clearly we see here, we've saw it earlier in John, we're going to see it all throughout John, Jesus knows when his time will come, right? At least he knows right now his time has not come yet. He knows his mission. He knows what he's supposed to do. He knows what the Father's plan is for him, and he is dead set on it. This is important for us to get. Jesus is a master of his situation. He is not just, uh, you know, changing depending on what's going on, but he knows his mission clearly, He's in control of a situation, in control of what's happening to him even, and he is not a victim. Jesus is not a victim of the Jewish uh, leaders. Jesus is not a victim of Rome executing him, nor is he a victim of the Father and the Father's plan to have Jesus crucified. Jesus is, is fully the master of his situation. And we see that today, and we're going to see it again and again and again throughout John. All right, I want us to spend just a few minutes on uh, some of the words Jesus says, some words that, as he was saying them, you probably thought that these are kind of strange, kind of confusing, probably offensive and insulting. In verse 7, Jesus uh, says, The world cannot hate you, speaking to his brothers, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So Jesus says, The world hates me because I tell the world you're evil. What you're doing is evil. And if we know Jesus' story, this, he, he's uh, not talking to the scumbags and the criminals and the worst of the worst, calling them evil, right? And all the good people are applauding. But Jesus is calling, uh, the, I mean, not just them evil, but he's calling everyone evil. He's saying that all people do evil. He's saying that his brothers do evil. And, and good Jewish boys and girls who are trying to follow the law, their works are also evil. Actually, if we know Jesus' story at all, the, the evil people, the people who really were full of sin and, and did horrible things, those are the people that, that uh, did not hate Jesus, right? He says, I call the world evil, their works evil, and they hate me because of it. If we think about who um, the evil people did not hate Jesus, right? Jesus hung around the worst of the worst, right? His enemies uh, said, Jesus is a friend of sinners. And Jesus said, you got that right. You got that right. I am a friend of sinners. I will eat with the scumbags, with the mob bosses, with the pimps, with the drug dealers, the thieves, the extortionists, the prostitutes, the people who are cast out of society, and so what's going on here when Jesus says, I, I tell the world that its, that its actions, that its works are evil and they hate me, he's actually not talking about all those people. He's talking about the people that think that they're good. And when Jesus says, everything you do is, is tainted with sin, it's evil, they're angry. 
They're furious. It's insulting. They hate him. So Jesus saying that our works are evil is just another way of calling us sinners, right? So there's kind of like biblical, uh, archaic, old word you maybe don't don't use very often. Maybe you don't even know what the word sin means. Just definitionally, uh, both the Greek word and the Hebrew word we translate into sin means uh, to miss the mark. So think of like an archer, like trying to hit the bullseye of living a perfect life, but we miss the mark. We cannot hit the bullseye. Or another way to say it is we are, we're just flawed. We're flawed. We're imperfect. And uh, whether we like to be called a sinner or not, whether we like to have someone look at us and say, your works are evil, none of us probably like that. But if we're honest with ourselves, when we think about sin as not just the worst of the worst things that people get executed for, but also just being flawed, being imperfect, most of us would uh, realize that that does describe us, right? We're flawed. We can never live up to the world's standards, let alone the standards that we have for ourselves or that we put on ourselves. So even if we are better than the person over there, and that might be true. That might be true for most of the people in your life. Maybe you are one of the most moral, hardworking, good people in your life. So maybe that is true. Even if we are better than that person over there, we all are still flawed, right? We are all still imperfect and broken and unable to live up to standards. We don't live up to our potential. We can't finish our New Year's resolutions. We are not the the classmate or the teammate or the friend or the spouse or the parent that we want to be, right? In our hearts, we know we're a bit of a failure, even though we try really hard not to be. We're flawed. We're imperfect. We have sin. Let me give you an example of this. So even if you're irreligious, even if you're an atheist, even if you think there's no moral code out there that I must follow, we actually put these uh, burdens, these uh, restrictions or these um, standards on ourselves. It's just human nature to say, hey, it's, it's self-evident that this is, is good, this is bad, and I want to be this, and I'm not going to be that. So we live in Minneapolis, uh, kind of the capital of yard signs. They are everywhere, uh, for good or for bad. And here's one that I saw. So we're going to look at it. I'm not saying anything good or bad about the yard sign, but I'm using it just, just to make a point. So uh, this yard sign, is very, uh, there's many of these, many that are similar. Uh, if you can't read, it says, In our home, disabilities are respected. No human is illegal. Women's rights are humans, human rights. Love is love. Diversity is celebrated. Science is real. Black lives matter. Compassion is everything. So the point here is not to say good sign or bad sign. The point is to just show we, by nature, put standards on ourselves. Okay? This person, I don't know if they're a Christian or not, but they're saying, this is what I want to live up to. I want to be compassion, compassionate constantly. I want to say diversity is something great that I will always celebrate. And we just, by nature, do, this is an example of how, whether you're religious or not, by nature, we put standards on ourselves and we fail at them, right? This person, maybe this person is like cream of the crop, almost morally uh, perfect, maybe, <laughs> let's just say. But has this person really always been compassionate? Every single time, have they been compassionate? Do they always respect every single disability that they see and come across every time? Do they celebrate all diversity every time, including their motives, their thoughts, what pops into their brain. So the point is, again, not to trash this person or this sign, but just to say we all just realize. I mean, if anyone is honest with ourselves, we realize we are flawed. We are imperfect. We cannot be the person we want to be. Or to use Jesus' words, we are sinners. Or we, are, we have evil within us. Our works are not completely perfect, but that there is evil in there. We're going to hit more on this in just a little bit because Jesus does as well. So we'll come back to this idea. Also here we see that Jesus says that the world hates him. The world hates him. And later on in John, John 15, which will take us about four or five more years to get to. But in John 15, we're going to see Jesus say something similar. He's going to tell his disciples, okay, the world does hate me. 
because of my teachings, because I call them out, because I, I, I see what's in their hearts, and I call them evil. And Jesus tells them, if the world hates me, the world will hate you, followers. The world will hate you, church. And this has always been the case. Jesus said it will happen and it will continue. In John 15, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I choose, or I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So to be real clear here, I read this before, John 3, maybe the most famous book of the Bible. God loved the world so much in this way that he sent his son to die for them. So of course here Jesus is not saying, I hate the world, the world sucks, but rather saying the world is against him and his gospel, and God loves the world deeply and sent Jesus to rescue them. And then Jesus is just saying, this is how it's going to play out. You now, my disciples, have been saved into my kingdom. And now you are not first and foremost citizens of the world, but citizens of my kingdom, which means that the world, like it hates me, will hate you. Like Pastor Chris said last week, the gospel by its nature is offensive, right? The gospel starts off with the bad news that says, we have evil hearts, we are sinners, we are flawed. You're not self-sufficient. You are imperfect, But the gospel doesn't offend to be a jerk. The gospel doesn't offend to try to just hurt people, nor does Jesus here when he's calling them out. So we don't try to be jerks. We don't try to offend. Yet, if we are followers of Christ, if we're a part of a church, there will be people that do hate us. Hate us individually because of Christ and hate us as a church because of Christ. Now, that might be hard for many of us to hear. You know, uh, no one really, I mean, I guess some people like to be hated. They see it as a badge of honor. Most of us don't like to be hated, though. So this is a hard truth that Jesus is uh, reminding us of. He's, He's trying to help them prepare as they move forward that not everyone will love you in my message. They hated me. They executed me because of it. And so we need to be careful if, uh, especially if you're someone like me who is kind of a people pleaser, who likes my neighbors to like me, my coworkers, my friends, my family. I don't want to be hated by them. I don't want them to um, despise me. So we need to be careful if that's you, uh, that our temptation is going to be to try to acquiesce or to give in or to change what Jesus said or to soften his, his harsh points or the stuff with the gospel that doesn't quite line up with what culture says. We need to be careful that our theology and our understanding of Jesus does not completely line up exactly with what the world says. Because if our theology lines up completely with what culture loves and values, we are probably missing something. Because Jesus promises that he, will be, he was hated and we will be at times by some people as well. So how do we respond to that hatred? I mean, think, think about the world right now, how the world responds to their enemies responds to the other side, responds to people that uh, do hate them, right? The world responds with a big F you, with I don't care, I'm not going to try to listen to you, I'm going to demonize you, I'm going to make you the enemy, I could care less. I mean, think about how evil people are responding to their enemies, to people that they think hate them, that are on the other side of anything, whether it's, I mean, fill in the blank, it's, it's everywhere. Yet because Jesus didn't do that to you, And to me and to us, we don't respond like that to those who hate us. In fact, we actually, we see ourselves in our enemies, people that hate us. We we say, man, apart from Christ, I would probably be that exact way too. Or in my sin, I was like this towards God. We see uh, our enemies with compassion because we know that they're blinded by the enemy and by lies and by sin. We remember that flesh and blood, other human beings, are not the ultimate enemy, but rather Satan and sin and death. We meditate on Jesus' teachings that we're to turn the other cheek when people hate us. And we're to pray for those who persecute us. And we're even supposed to love those who call us their enemies and tell us that they hate us. Not because we're special, but as we just sang in that last, or one of those songs earlier today, not because of us, but because Christ is in us because his spirit is in us and the way he responded to his enemies, the way he responded to those who hate us, that same spirit is within us 
And we will, imperfectly of course, but we will respond in like as well. All right. Now even though what Jesus says here is true, many in the world do hate him, we also see that the crowds say that he's a good man. So we kind of have both going on again, kind of another strange like dichotomy. Which is it? Does the world hate him or does the world think he's a great man and crowds follow him? And I see, uh, we, we see both of these. And so we, the, what's going on here, we see the crowds following Jesus, hearing about Jesus, hearing his teaching, see, he, uh, hearing his compassion, seeing his power, his miracles, him uh, bending the laws of nature, him moving towards the marginalized and, and the poor and the diseased. And people are drawn in. They're seeing this guy, a, a, a human being, a, a, a rabbi, a leader, just a person that's unlike anyone they've ever seen. And they're compelled by him. They're attracted to him. They're drawn in. And they call him a good man. Some in the crowd see him and, and what he's done. And they say, wow, look at that man. He is, he is a good man, unlike anyone we have ever seen. And in a lot of ways, this is true, of course, right? He, Jesus uh, befriended uh, people on the margins. He, he brought in females as, as friends and as disciples in a world that never would have seen that. He moved towards the, the hated ethnic group, the, the Samaritans, and he shares the gospel with a, with a woman who has had, uh, you know, who's even ostracized and shunned by her whole community, who has had much sexual, sexual sin in her past, and he makes her one of the first evangelists that goes and tells people that he really is the Messiah. We see Jesus touching the untouchable, the dirty, the, the contagious, diseased people. We see him move towards the Roman oppressors and heal their, their sick kids. The world rightly is looking at this man, this Jesus, and saying, who is this guy? I, I, I can't help but be drawn towards him. He is a great man. And at the same time, others are saying, actually, he's not a great man. He's leading other people astray. He's breaking our laws. What he's doing is taboo and scandalous. We're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to interact with Samaritans and, and women publicly and befriend sinners. We're not supposed to break laws by healing on the Sabbath and you know, eating holy bread and, and, and things like that. So some are calling him a good man. Others are saying he's leading people astray. He's leading them away from the temple, away from uh, Jerusalem, away from the center of uh, the, 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 the Jewish faith. And so we have people loving him and hating him at the same time. So what is it, right? What is it? Was Jesus a good man? Or was he leading people astray? Or later he gets, uh, people say that he's crazy and that he's possessed by a demon. So which one is it? Some of his actions, some of his teachings, especially to the first century audience, uh, they sound very crazy, right? His, his biological brothers are not his disciples. They don't follow him. They don't believe him. We just read. In other gospel accounts, we see Jesus' mother, Mary, and his siblings think Jesus is crazy. They're saying, you know, Jesus, stop teaching like that. Come here. And they think that he is crazy. So what is he? Like C.S. Lewis, though, so famously argued, Jesus only gives us three options to decide who Jesus is. He was either a madman who actually thought he was God, so he's crazy, or he was a manipulating liar that was trying to con and deceive everyone. Or he really was who he said he was. C.S. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And this is what they say. I'm ready to accept that Jesus, uh, accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And back to C.S. Lewis. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, he would be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. I think that's funny. It's so British to say, like, right? He's a crazy man who thinks he's a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God, or else a madman 
or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about, this, about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. I mean, think about this. Let's just put this in current terms. If a great moral teacher, if someone that was highly respected by what they teach about life, think uh, Brene Brown, Barack Obama, Oprah, Jordan Peterson, pick your favorite uh, secular moral teacher. If they also, you went to their conference or you read their book, and in, in, in that they said, I am God, bow down and worship me, they would at that moment cease to be a good moral teacher, right? If Brene Brown said, worship me, reader, if Jordan Peterson said, fall down at my feet and call me God, no longer would we say that they are a good moral teacher. And Jesus likewise does not let us just say, hey, he's a good teacher. He's a good rabbi. I like some of his teachings. Jesus himself is not giving us that option. About even like in pop culture, there are people who have uh, artists who have claimed to be God or the name God and think about what we have done to them, right? We've literally called them crazy and nuts and they have lost lots of their followings because of it. We see that uh, not just in our own lives, but Jesus is playing this out uh, as well. Jesus continues uh, his assault on the self-righteous, uncompassionate religious establishment in our passage here. So uh, about the middle of the festival, so four days in, Jesus no longer stays hidden in the crowds. He wants to say something. So in the middle of this festival, he, he goes up to the temple and, be, and he begins to teach. So probably a new crowd than the crowd that's been following him and, and knows him back in Galilee. And when they see him teach with such brilliance and authority and power and knowledge, the crowd's like, who is this guy? Like, this guy went to public school in Begley, Minnesota, like, far, far away from, like, our private schools and our seminaries and our rabbinic traditions, and there's no internet and very few books. Like, how does he know all this stuff? How does he know the Bible so well? How does he speak with such persuasion and authority and power? And Jesus responds to them. He says, my influence does not come from uh, human work. It does not come from education, but I speak Everything I speak is from the Father. The Father who has sent me, the Father who has given me a message. I want to glorify him, not me. Jesus says, my, my point here is not to become a celebrity, not to trend, not to have many people follow me as a great rabbi, but everything I say is to give God the Father glory. And then notice what he does. After saying that, he looks them in the eyes, he speaks to the crowd, out of that authority, that, that powerful speaking that he has, the, the great knowledge and understanding of God's word, he looks to the crowd and he tells them this. He says in verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep it. Now, we're not first century Jewish people in this context, so this does not quite have the punch, but for the crowd, Jesus saying this to them, is a kick in the gut. It's very offensive. Like, the crowd probably literally said, ooh, ouch, Jesus. That kind of hurt. Why'd you go there? What an insult. So to kind of use, like, let's, let's use more like today's language here. It would be like saying to a doctor, you don't keep the Hippocratic Oath. You hypocrite. Or saying to a judge, you don't keep the Constitution. Or to a police officer, you don't keep the law. Or to a Christian, you don't keep the Bible. You don't keep Jesus' teachings. Like, how offensive would that be? It's very offensive, right? He's hitting at the heart of people's identity and their, their, uh, their self-worth. Didn't Moses give you the law? You guys don't follow it. So why does Jesus do this? And is this true? And if it's true, how is this true? 
How can it be that the best of the best aren't following the rules? How can it be that the most uh, religious and, and pietistic and hardworking and self-controlled, if they can't follow the rules, what hope do I have? The crowd is saying, we might be saying as we hear this, what's Jesus doing here? Jesus is profoundly teaching that we both don't keep the law, the rules, the expectations, and we also can't fully keep the law. And Jesus' response here, telling the crowd, the religious crowd, they can't follow their own religious rules, is layered intentionally. It's profound. It's deep. So we're going to look at what he's saying here kind of through three different angles to kind of understand what's going on here. The first angle is even kind of comical. So basically he's telling them, hey, I am the fulfillment of the entire Mosaic law. Everything Moses wrote, everything you say you're committed to and have memorized and are following, I am the fulfillment of it. I am the point of it. I, you know, I, the law foreshadowed what I, what I would do. It's all about me. Actually, we saw this back in John 5. Jesus says, if you really read Moses, you would see me because Moses wrote about me. Jesus told the crowd earlier. So it's kind of comical, but Jesus is saying, the point of everything you love and hold true, the law, the point of all that is standing right in front of you, and guess what your response is? You want to kill me, which is so ironic and crazy, right? He's saying, you think you're super righteous, super good, you're following all the rules, and yet when I show up and tell you you're not, what do you want to do? You want to kill me, which maybe you don't know much about religion at all, but I think all religions have, have the rule, do not kill, right? It's kind, of, it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal in the law. It's like one of the big ten, right? Don't kill someone. And so he's saying, look at your hearts, guys. You think you're following the law, but your anger, when I say you're not following the law, is you want to murder me. Even when they think they're following the rules, obeying the laws, they're actually breaking it because they want to kill Jesus. A second angle on what Jesus is doing here as well is he kind of gives a clear example of how, so he says, you don't follow the law, crowd, and here's an example of how you don't follow the law, which leads him into his next point, which I'll get to in a second. But he gives an example here, verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it. So here Jesus is talking about earlier, uh, he healed on the Sabbath, the, the day that no Jew was supposed to do any work. On the Sabbath, he actually healed a guy that had been lame for decades, who could not walk, busted legs, was lame, and Jesus healed him. So he's, Jesus is referencing that here. I did one work, and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses uh, may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? So Jesus is just arguing, you and your tradition, you're breaking the Sabbath law because you don't want to break this other law that says that you're supposed to circumcise a, a boy in the eighth day as he becomes part of the Jewish uh, tribe, the Jewish faith. And so if that's the case, if you break the Sabbath law to fulfill the circumcision law, then how much, you know, in the circumcision law is just a small way of, of, of fixing a small part of a person then how much more is this a good thing that I'm breaking the Sabbath law by healing an entire person's body? So Jesus is showing them that he broke the law by doing something even greater, just like they regularly do when they break the Sabbath in order to do some work by circumcising uh, boys on the eighth day. And then the third angle we see here, Jesus, although his words seem very harsh, seem very insulting and offensive. The third angle on this, Jesus is actually loving the crowds. He's loving you. He's loving me. He's loving us by helping us see that we cannot keep the law. We cannot hit the mark on our own. We are all broken. We are all incomplete. We are all flawed. Our works are evil. Our hearts are darkened. Our motives are imperfect. Our thoughts are corrupt. We're sinners. We need a savior. We need a solution outside of us. We need, a, we need help. 
So Jesus is, is, is doing this because he loves us, because he loves the crowd, because he loves you and me. My former pastor, uh, Steve Treichler, many of you know him uh, back at Hope Community Church, he um, has said a number of times that the most loving thing you can do to someone is to let them know that they're a sinner. Which maybe sounds backward, sounds wrong, but his point being, of course, be gentle and compassionate. Of course, the motives should be love. But the greatest thing we can do is, is, is tell a person that they need Jesus, that they're imperfect, that they're flawed, that they can't save themselves apart from Jesus. An example of this, I think I've told this story uh, years ago, but for almost 15 years of my life, I never went to the doctor because I was a, you know, a foolish, arrogant uh, young man thinking, I'm fine, I'm young, I'm healthy, I don't need to go to the doctor. The one time I did go to the doctor when I was like 22, hospitalized for three days, they never figured out what was wrong with me. They discharged me without telling me why. And I'm like, never coming back here again. And so, yeah, didn't go to the doctor for a long time. Finally, early 30s, I, I finally go to the doctor, and I find out that something is wrong. Something's deeply wrong with me. There's something inside me that I cannot see that is harmful. And so it was actually, it was good. Not just neutral, it was good. It was even loving of my doctor. I don't know if my doctor loves me, but it was, it was a loving action for my doctor to say, Spencer, there's something wrong with you. You can't see it. You maybe don't even see many symptoms on the outside, but there's something inside of you, something at your core that is very unhealthy, it's dangerous, and, and without being fixed, it will eventually kill you. And if you're wondering, it's just, I have the cholesterol of an 80-year-old. So that's, that's the, the thing inside of me. But in that example, we see that a doctor just backing up and saying, nah, you're good. You're, you're more healthy than a bunch of my other patients. That's not a good doctor. That's not loving. And so Jesus telling us there's something inside of us that's dangerous, it's unhealthy, and it eventually will destroy you. It's actually love that Jesus tells us of that. In fact, the Bible connects things like sin and evil with uh, disease and sickness. Sin is called spiritual disease or, or spiritual sickness. And, and both of these things, sin as well as disease, will lead to death. Both are terminal. And so yes, yes, maybe I was healthier than, let's even say, most of the world. Let's, let's just say you know, when I got this diagnosis, I was healthier than most of the world. Which, you know, if that's connected to our, our good deeds, maybe you do more good deeds than most of the world. Maybe if we graded on a curve, you would not be on the evil side. You would be on the not as evil side. You know, the, the a bit more good side. But back to my story, even if I'm healthier than most people, than maybe most of my doctor's other patients, or even most of the world, let's say I'm 51 percentile, I'm healthier than most in the world, that doesn't mean that I'm all right. Right? It doesn't mean that I'm okay just because I'm not as unhealthy as other people. It doesn't mean that sickness inside of me won't eventually lead to more sickness and eventual death. The Apostle John who wrote this, a few decades later, wrote letters back to churches after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And he writes this in 1 John one, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. And so John says it, Jesus says it, it's because of God's love for us, we're told we, we are broken, we are flawed, we are incomplete in and of ourselves. And so we need something. We need something outside of us. And thank God our story does not end in John 7 with Jesus just giving judgment, just holding up a mirror or an x-ray that says, look inside. I guess an x-ray went through this. I guess maybe if it's a tumor or MRI, MRI result saying, you have a disease inside of you, you're going to die. The story doesn't stop there. Jesus comes not just as a judge or as a doctor to tell us we're terminally ill with a disease or that we're flawed, that we're imperfect, but Jesus shows up as a savior. 
He shows up as a healer. Not just a physical healer who touches sick and even dead people and brings them back, but a healer of people who are spiritually diseased, who have a spiritual something in their heart that's going to take their life and lead them to death eventually. Jesus doesn't just fix broken and diseased bodies, but broken and diseased souls as well. People who are imperfect. People who are flawed. This is good news if that's who you are. People who need to be remade. Who need to not just put a band-aid on it, but to need a heart transplant or a bone marrow transplant. Whatever it might be. The good news today is that Jesus came to save evil people. Jesus came to save lawbreakers. You don't think you're that? This is not that great a news. If you know you have broken the law, God's law, your own standards, if you know you're imperfect, if you know you've done evil in your life, you just can't shake it out of your mind completely, out of your heart, out of your motives completely. If that's you, then this is good news. Jesus came to save, to fix, to rescue the evil lawbreakers, who I'm a part of, and you are as well. Skip this middle verse. I read John, First uh, John 1, 8 and 10, but look at the verse right in between there. Let's go back to it. Verse uh, 8 again says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, God is faithful, and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the good news here today. God is faithful. He promises that if we trust in him, he will fix all those problems. He is faithful to cleanse you from all your law-breakingness, all your evil, all your unrighteousness. He's powerful enough to do it, and he's faithful, and when he says he'll do it, he will do it. But notice, too, he's not only faithful. He's not only good and loving John says here, it's also just that if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, it's just, it's right, it's good. It's not injustice that you will be declared innocent. And why is that the case? Biblical teacher uh, Jen Wilkin writes on this. She says, uh, this is why the Bible reminds us that if we confess our sins, God is not only faithful to forgive our sins, but also just. Because Christ was punished in our place, God would be unjust to punish us for a sin that has already received its recompense or, or its payment. The need for excuses for self-justification is removed. We are justified before God in Christ. So what Jesus accomplishes in your life, you put your faith and your trust in him, the sins, the, the ways that you've broken the law, the evil deeds and thoughts and motives in your life, all the punishment that's deserved for those things, Jesus takes on himself. And so God is a good, just judge. He doesn't show favoritism or, or overlook evil, but he punishes it because Jesus says, I'll take that punishment. And so if you are a Christian, if you've put your faith in Christ, it is just, it is good God does not uh, look at you and see your sin. Another way to say it, apart from Christ, we are breakers of the law. We are law breakers. Right? Jesus said it here in our passage today. Through Christ, we are now justified. We are now declared innocent. Jesus takes on our punishment, our guilt, and he literally gives us his innocence. And when God the Father looks at us, he sees Christ's innocence. That is who you are. That is your new identity. Or another way to say it from our uh, language in our passage here today, apart from Christ, we cannot shed the evil that is inside of us. It's a disease. It's a poison that's, that's everywhere. And try as we might, we cannot get rid of it. Yet, through faith in Christ, we move from being evil to now being righteous, to be innocent, whole, and holy. We are spiritually diseased, without Jesus, but through faith in him, the disease is healed. We're even made into a new creation. Jesus shows up not just as a new teacher with a new motivation to say, come on, Jews, we've been getting pretty lazy with this. Let's, let's, let's do better. 
doesn't come like that. He doesn't come with new rules to kind of add on top of the old rules. Like, okay, the law worked, but you're getting a little lazy, so now I'm going to give you a few more little like bonus rules that will help you get to there. He doesn't do that. Jesus comes not as a new teacher with new rules or new laws, but rather Jesus comes to flawed, imperfect people that even hate him. And he comes as the solution. He comes as the savior. He comes as the justifier. He comes as the penalty absorber. He comes as the one that can truly heal you from that disease inside. The one that can give you a new heart so you no longer have evil within you. He's the one that can make you into a new creation so that you no longer desire to break the law, but desire to live for him. So turn today, you and me, all of us, turn today from our self-sufficiency that says, I'm good with God because of my hard work, because of the family I'm a part of, because of my education, my class, because I'm better than others. Turn from that today. Turn from your self-sufficiency, your independence, trying to live up to the standards that you've put in your life and that you're failing or the standards that God requires of you to be perfect. Stop trying to, to, to work towards that on your own. And Jesus says, just submit. Just say, God, I can't do it. Help me, a sinner. That's all you have to do. That's all he's asking you to do today. He's saying, let me take your burden. Let me heal you. Let me give you a new identity. Let me demonstrate my love towards you, even while you're still sinners, even while you're evil and law-breaking and, and, and flawed and imperfect. I don't care. I want you. I love you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this, this great interaction we see between Jesus and people just like us. God, thank you. Thank you that you are patient with us. You are a patient God that does not look at us lawbreakers that are so self-righteous and say, all right, you hate me, so I'm out of here. I'm going to go to other people. But you are so patient with us, Jesus. Patient to each one of us here in this room. Patient to humanity. God, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sins, but it's when we were still sinners, you died for us. You offered us salvation through trusting in your son. We pray we would receive that and that would change our lives. You would make us uh, look more and more like Christ through the power of your spirit because of the gospel, not because we're better law keepers than the Jewish people, not because we have more self-control than the Romans, not because we are just more brilliant than our foolish neighbors and teammates and classmates, but just purely because you loved us. So we thank you for that good news that we sing about and celebrate uh, through word and deed and symbol today. Thank you, Jesus.